The reading is Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 31. Peter and John before the council. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word and the number of many of those heard the word and the number of the men came to about 5000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all those of the priestly, high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today, concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognised that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing before them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have heard, of seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them, because of the people, for all were praising God for what, they had, what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken, 
and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Thank you, Hannah, and uh, uh, let me say good morning and welcome. Uh, Lovely to have you with us today as we come to God's Word. I told you when we started out in this series in the book of Acts that it was an exciting book, and it's proving to be, isn't it? You know, it's a hard thing to do to hold to an unpopular opinion. There is something about how societies function, even how friendship groups function, that makes it very uncomfortable, whatever stage of life you're at, to hold an unpopular opinion. Um, A child who is mocked by his peers about his love for Power Rangers feels the pressure to keep that preference to himself. Someone who questions the prevailing narrative in our culture about gender identity or sexual ethics will quite possibly find themselves called names. They will possibly receive warnings from social media companies, warnings from the police even, warnings from their employer even, and they may even find themselves cancelled. Society responds in this way to unpopular opinions, not just to punish the individual who dared to speak those strange views, but it responds in this way to silence everyone else who might be tempted to have wrong thoughts. And if we're honest, we look out at our society and in the main, this approach works. Most conclude that in those areas of hot debate, and in fact, the examples that I chose to to give today, I, I curated so as not to cause offense. It works, it works. They, just, they conclude that the, the, the cost of saying something is just not worth it. The grief that it might bring is just too great. But I want to ask you this question today. What would it take for you to come to the opposite conclusion? What would it take for you to say, you know what, the grief, the hassle, the pain, the hatred, it's worth it what would it take? Well, in Acts chapter 4, for the first time, this group of Jesus' followers, they face opposition. So far, as we've read through the first three chapters of this book, it has been a dazzling display of the power of God as people have trusted in Jesus. They've been brought into this new community and God is in their midst. He's at work. He's changing them. He's doing powerful things through them and using them to bring more people in. In one day, 3,000 became Christians as the message of Jesus was proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 3, last week, we saw that that was no flash in the pan. The Holy Spirit, through Peter's words, in the name of Jesus Christ, healed a man who had been lame from birth, and as we've just read at the end of chapter 4, he was, he'd been like that for 40 years. This man who'd earned his living begging at the gate of the temple, in an instant he rises to his feet and he leaps about the place praising God. 
Those who saw it were amazed. And so Peter does what Peter does. He explains, this isn't my doing. This is because of the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Peter urged all who were there to turn around, to believe in and follow Jesus. And what do we expect when Peter speaks like that? We expect a response. We're expecting great things to come. But before the preaching is finished comes verse 1 of chapter 4. And there, Luke, who writes this book of Acts, he says, now the head honchos of the temple came in and they set upon these guys. They're annoyed at Peter and John. They arrest them and they give them a night in the cells. This will be the new reality for the church, opposition. We see here a church that is confronted with the cost of speaking about Jesus of Nazareth. And we see the church that won't be silenced. Well, this opposition is real. Luke, he records for us that the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees come upon them. The captain of the temple, he's the guy who is responsible for maintaining order in the temple. He is, he is chief of the temple police, amongst other responsibilities. The Sadducees who set upon them are a, a powerful sect of Judaism. They dominated the Jewish ruling council at the time. One of their distinctives was their conviction that there was no such thing as a resurrection from the dead. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe that there was judgment after death. And of course, you see that that's what annoys them, isn't it? What is it they're greatly annoyed about in verse 2? Well, because Peter and John are teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. By the time the authorities intervene, though, it's too late to gather the council together and formally interrogate these guys, so they get a night in jail. And instinctively, we're, we're, we're concerned for them. Things have been going so well for this new church, but this, the religious authorities are, are starting to clamp down on them. This is going to slow things down, isn't it? Don't believe it for a minute. Luke shows us when opposition comes, the gospel remains powerful. When opposition comes, the gospel remains powerful. Look at verse 4 and that word, but. In other words, despite the best efforts of the authorities to dampen down enthusiasm for Peter and John's message about Jesus, instead, many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. I love this. I love the way Luke slots this in here. In Acts 1, we read there were 120 followers of Jesus. By the end of Acts 2, it's just over 3,000. And here, the apostles, they're obstructed, they're locked up, and yet another 5,000 believe in Jesus. That's what is being said here. 5,000 new converts believed in Jesus. The power of the gospel is undiminished. And this is the repeated message of the whole Bible, to be honest with you, but especially the New Testament. I mean, it begins at the cross of Jesus Christ. 
From a human perspective, you look on at the execution of Jesus, and what was it? It was an effort to silence him, to have him away forever. And yet, this effort to silence Jesus, to shut him up, was the very means that God would use to provide salvation for the worlds. The Apostle Paul would write a letter from a Roman prison saying, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to further the gospel. That same Apostle Paul, again writing from a Roman prison, would write to Timothy and say, even though I'm in chains, the Word of God is not bound. In other words, when opposition comes, the gospel remains powerful. And this is the perspective we need, isn't it? Our confidence is never in techniques, never in how well thought of we are. Our confidence is never in how well disposed we think people are to hearing us. Our confidence is in the gospel, the good news about Jesus, which has a power that no man, no government, no social media platform can even dent, because the gospel is and always will be the power of God to salvation for all who believe. In the early 16th century, a German monk called Martin Luther published a number of works which undermined the authority of church structures in his day. He had the audacity to tell people that they could be right with God by simply having faith in Jesus Christ alone. He was saying, you don't need the priest. You don't need the structures of this big edifice that they call the church. You just need faith in Jesus Christ. Well, in 1521, Martin Luther was summoned to a meeting. And he was summoned to a meeting by Emperor Charles V, at which meeting Martin was expected to renounce his writings. Take it all back, they said. The emperor called him and said, take it back. Luther records that his knees were knocking when he went to that meeting. So much so that on the first day he said, can I, can I have a little more time to think about it? And the next day he came back and he said, here I stand. And Europe was never the same again. Well, for Peter and John, the morning comes. And Luke, who comes filing in to interrogate him. Verse 5, the rulers, the elders, the scribes, with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, who was uh, Annas' son-in-law, who served as the high priest, and John and Alexander are probably members of this priestly family as well. These are the guys who hold religious power in Jerusalem. It's like being summoned before the emperor. What an intimidating scene. These two fishermen called before all the religious power that Jerusalem could muster. Just think of the imbalance of power in that room. And they say to them, by what power? Or by what name did you do this? And that question really is to say, chaps, we know that you didn't do this in our name. So tell us, by what authority do you do these things? 
The pressure must have been palpable. Surely their knees were knocking. And how tempting would it have been to say, oh, it's, it, it, was, it was nothing. I mean, we, we won't be any more trouble to you. Well, actually, we did this in the name of Jesus, but really, there's nothing for you guys to worry about. We're all on the same side. We just want to help people, don't we? Not at all. This exchange shows us that when opposition comes, the mission of the church remains the same. So, we've seen already when opposition comes, the the message of the gospel is still powerful. When opposition comes, the mission of the church remains the same. Peter does not soften his message for this audience. And we're starting to see a pattern with Peter. Whenever someone says to Peter, what's this about? What's going on? Well, Peter jumps in. This healing miracle that took place in Acts 3 is still opening doors for the gospel. That's why it took place, that doors would open for the gospel to be proclaimed. Whatever pressure Peter was under, Luke tells us Peter had something greater. Verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, filled with the Holy Spirit. Spirit. You remember that the promise of Jesus was that his followers would receive power when the Spirit comes upon them, power to be his witnesses? Well, here is the Holy Spirit at work. So, let me point out two aspects of this unchanging mission. First of all, the message is unchanged. The message is unchanged. It was in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that the lame man was healed, says Peter. Yes, verse 10, the same Jesus whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. And here Peter, he makes this allusion to the Old Testament to show these men that it was foretold that Jesus would be rejected by the leadership of Israel. And it's taken from that psalm that that Mark read earlier for, for us, Psalm 118. Verse 22 of that psalm says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And in verse 11, Peter says, that stone that's referred to in that psalm is Jesus. The stone that was rejected by you, it has become the cornerstone. The one whom you deemed to to be deserving of suffering and disgrace and death, the one who was rejected by humanity, has been raised from the dead, and more than that, raised to the place of honor at the right hand of God. You looked on him, and you judged him to be a useless stone, but God looks on him and considers him very differently indeed. He has revealed Jesus to be the most significant stone of all. He is the cornerstone, the stone that is foundational to everything that God is building And every other stone in the building gets its contour, its line, its direction from that cornerstone that God has laid. If you were listening earlier, the next verse of that psalm says this, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. It's the Lord's doing is the message of Psalm 118. 
The Lord has sent his rescuer, the promised Messiah. The Lord has ordained that he will suffer and die in rejection. And it is the Lord who raises him to life again and exalts him. And it's marvelous. It's marvelous because of the offer that comes with it. You see that in verse 12 of our passage? There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is slightly unusual language in our day, but it really cuts to the heart of the issue. Peter says to these guys, and again, remember the power imbalance here, he looks up at these guys and he says, you need to be saved. But saved from what? They need to be saved from their sins. Sin is everything in us that is against God, everything that puts me first and God somewhere else. And it does include the things that come to our mind, the blatantly wicked things that human beings do, dare I say that even I do and you do. But it also includes the more subtle sins, the sins that are just simply selfish, when we do things, maybe even good things, but we don't do them for God. I do them for me. And sin is taken so seriously by God because He designed and made us to live a life that honors Him, to depend upon Him, to reflect who He is. And every thought every deed, every word that has some other motive behind it than honoring God. That is what the Bible calls sin. That is what the Bible tells us separates us from God. That is what the Bible tells us enslaves us so that we can't do anything else. And there is no way out. We need a rescuer, to use Peter's language. We need to be saved and the early church, they keep proclaiming this message. You need to be rescued, but God has provided a rescuer, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, because only Jesus can deal with sin, and He does so by bearing the judgment your sin deserves on the cross. Belief in Jesus saves us from sin and from judgment, because instead, God looks to Jesus and forgives us for His sake. And you can be sure of that. Peter's message always declares, you can be sure of that because God raised them from the dead, and of that we are witnesses. This message does not change, even if it's unpopular, even if it's actively opposed and I want to say today the apostle's message is our message. You need to be right with God. And on your own, you cannot get there. But God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be our savior. You need him. And here's the amazing thing. Here he is today offered to you. To you, where you sit now, with all that you're carrying, with all that's in your history, to you. Jesus Christ is offered. He is calling you. He will save you. Come to Him believing. The second aspect of this unchanging mission of the church, not just that the message is unchanged, 
but the need to speak that message remains unchanged. This seemingly all-powerful Jewish council can hardly believe the boldness of Peter and John. I mean, just the impudence of it. This is clearly something they've not encountered before. Uh, Verse 13, it's not just boldness. I'm sure they'd seen boldness before, but it's this, this mismatch that takes place. These guys were Galileans. They came from a backwater town up in the north. They were fishermen. They weren't educated. They were regular guys, which is really what Luke is trying to say in verse 13, uneducated, common men. They were regular guys. And what the authorities couldn't deny was that they had been with Jesus. This is what they recognized in them. This unwillingness to bow to the opposition, however powerful it is, but to speak. They recognized this had come from Jesus. This is where their training has come from. They've been with Him. More than that, the chap who had been healed was still standing there with them. I take it from that he had a night in the cells as well just for being healed. So what possible argument could they offer? That's what Luke says here, isn't it? What possible argument? They had no comeback. So the council does what a council does. They send the guys out, they have a private chat, and the best thing they can do in their own minds is to use their authority to threaten these apostles into silence. There's hardly a more tragic thing you could read. Peter has just made the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ to these men who crucified Jesus. And they themselves can see that they can't argue against it. What he's saying is watertight. And yet their response is not to listen, not to submit, but to suppress the truth. And this is this remarkable human quality. They don't believe. And do you know why they don't believe? Because they don't want this to be true. Not because they're convinced they've had this this deep investigation and they've weighed up the arguments and they've become convinced that, well, what they're saying is not true. They can't argue against it, but they don't want it. We do not want this, Jesus, anything but that. Their personal pride is more important to them than knowing the living God, and here is where it gets tragic. They will be damned in their pride. So what happens when the church is told to keep its mouth shut? Verse 18, they called them, charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Well, look at what these guys say in response. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. These followers of Jesus will continue to follow Jesus, will continue to speak in the name of Jesus, even if the authorities forbid them and threaten to cancel them. It's a straightforward issue of authority here. God's Word is the supreme authority, and He has called upon these men to speak for Jesus. So that's what they're going to do, whatever the cost. And there's a principle here 
um, something that probably deserves much more time than I'm away to give it. Um, We're being shown here in Acts chapter 4 the limitations of the authority of the state, I suppose. Here you've got the religious authorities in Jerusalem, and their authority has limits. Now, I want to say this uh, very clearly. Christians, the expectation in the New Testament is that Christians will be model citizens. By that I mean rebelliousness is not how Christians should typically respond to those who rule over them. How many of us are squirming in our seats just now? In fact, the Apostle Paul would say in Romans chapter 13, he says, you must submit to those who rule over you because God has put them there. And if you resist them, you're resisting God. But what we're being shown in Acts chapter 4 is that there's, there's more to be said on that subject. It's possible for rulers to overstep their authority. And it becomes necessary at times for Christians to defy them. And this in Acts 4 is one such occasion. When they say, don't speak about Jesus anymore. Whenever the command of the government contradicts the command of God, then one's obligation is to the Lord every time. In fact, Peter and John here say it's not just that they're choosing to ignore the threat. The way they say it is as if they're saying, well, I mean, you judge for yourself what we should do, but we, we can't do anything else. We can't but tell people what we've seen and heard. If you'd seen and heard what we've seen and heard, you would be telling people about it. How can we not speak about Jesus? Now, this is a nuanced principle, which I am not going to get into just now, but on this principle example that we're given in Acts 4, even when opposition comes, the mission of the church does not change. The message doesn't change, and the need to speak doesn't change, even if those who rule over us ban us from doing so. We must speak the gospel. Well, Peter and John, they return to their church family, and they tell them what the authorities said to them. Now, just bear that in mind. They go back to the church, and they say, well, they all turned up. They all turned up. The whole council turned up, and they threatened us. Stop speaking in the name of Jesus or else. Well, in this last section that we're looking at today, Luke shows us when opposition comes, the church prays. When opposition comes, the church prays. Now, that's maybe not a surprising thing, but maybe you were surprised by what they prayed for. That opening address to God, they start praying in verse 24. Sovereign Lord. I really think that sums up their perspective, their whole perspective in how they pray about this issue. Sovereign Lord. They appreciate that God is sovereign, that there is not one square inch of the cosmos that God does not rule over. 
And so there's not a, not a single aspect of what has taken place in Peter and John's experience that is outside of God's control. And that's what they first reflect on in prayer. You see that sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. God is over everything. It's His. And God spoke in Psalm 2, which is, what, is what's quoted in verses 25 and 26. In Psalm 2, he, God speaks through David, King David, about the opposition that would come against his anointed one. The Gentiles would rage. You see that verse 25. Gentiles are, are simply a word for non-Jews. The kings of the earth, they set themselves against God's chosen one. And they understand that all of these things that were spoken of, they happened against Jesus. Look at that, verse 27, their interpretation, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod, Pilate, Roman soldiers, all the people of Israel opposed him. But what was that doing? Verse 28, it was doing whatever God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. They pray to the sovereign Lord, who even in the face of angry rulers opposing Jesus, he fulfills what he had predestined to take place. And so with all of that clear in their minds, you notice that they spend time praying through these things before they come to their request in verse 29. Here's what they ask for in prayer. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and, well, what would you put next? What would you put next? Someone's come back to church and said, well, I just had the worst meeting with the first minister. She said, stop speaking about Jesus or else. Now, of course, she would never say that, I'm sure. Stop speaking about Jesus or else. And so we bow on our knees together and we pray, Lord, listen to the threats and what? change their minds, make the threats go away, strike them down, grant us peace, let us be unhindered in this work of making Jesus known. Let's see how they got on. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. What a prayer. What a prayer. They're saying, Lord, you were in control when the rulers railed against Jesus and you brought your plans to fruition. Now, Lord, look at these guys who rail against us. Help us to be those who speak for Jesus so that you might bring your plans to fruition. What a prayer. They pray for all boldness. Of course, that's not the end of the prayer. Verse 20, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Lord, our knees might be knocking here. We might be tempted to become so fearful that we would stop speaking about Jesus. So we're praying, Lord, give us boldness to be willing to put everything on the line for Jesus. 
Don't let us be tempted to slip into the background unnoticed. Continue to verify the truth of this message by performing these miracles in the name of Jesus. We don't want to be a hidden group. We want to speak about Jesus, whatever the cost. And God is so good, isn't he? The room shakes. How confirming for these believers the room shakes, just to remind them that the boldness that they're seeking, the power that they need, really does come from God, and He is providing it. And Luke tells us that they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continue to speak the Word of God with boldness, exactly what they prayed for. God gave them by doing what He'd always promised to do, to give them power by the Holy Spirit. We are given a remarkable glimpse, aren't we, into the prayer life of the church here. They are not afraid to spend time reflecting on who God is in prayer. They have their priorities clear, don't they? Nothing is more important to them in their prayer than the mission of making Jesus known. But they know that they cannot do this without the power of God working in them. Just as we draw things to a close here, let's, let's just consider some of these things together. When opposition comes, I think we are living in an age where it is increasingly difficult, particularly in some quarters of our society for the good news of Jesus Christ to get a hearing. And as Christians, it's very easy for us to be concerned, understandably concerned, I think, that speaking about Jesus might have an impact on my friendships, on my work prospects, on family relationships even. Some of you have known those tensions. If we get too vocal about Jesus, it's going to make life difficult for me in some areas. More than that, the, the church does not hold the cherished place in society that people tell me it used to have. There are more obstacles in our way than ever before to getting a hearing for this message. And while we wouldn't choose to have any of those difficulties, whatever ones are in your mind right now, this passage of Scripture is here to remind you today, despite what's going on in Scotland today, the gospel has lost none of its power. Not an iota of power has been lost from the gospel. And this is why the mission remains unchanged, even for us. Because opposition cannot diminish the power of the gospel. But if our response to that opposition is to alter the message of the gospel, to soften the message of the gospel, then we ourselves strip the gospel of its power. The message of the good news of Jesus Christ condemns everyone as needing to be saved, to take Peter's language here. And says the only way you can be saved and be right with God is through Jesus Christ. Through submitting yourself to Him. And He has done everything to make it possible for you. 
the message, the mission are unchanged. And it's to be an encouragement to us because I don't know how aware of this Peter and John would have been as they were being dragged off into jail. They're going to spend a night there. Did they know that 5,000 people had come to faith that day? They must have seen some. Could they have possibly believed that 5,000 people had come to faith that day? And what did, what, Who knows? Who knows the opposition that you fear so much, and I fear as well, even as that is raging on around us, as you speak for Jesus, as you do what these guys did, or speak of what you have seen and heard, that that powerful gospel message will transform lives. What else is there? What else is there? What else is there worth putting everything on the line for? I mean, some people take up some important causes in our day. There's none more important than this. To speak of all that we've seen and heard of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. But what a challenge to us as a church family. We are aware, I think, of the increasing, seemingly increasing opposition to the gospel in our society. We've been aware of it for some time. The strange thing is that its relationship to the to the prayer life of evangelical churches has been um, an inverse relationship. As opposition has increased, it seems prayerfulness has decreased. When we take this example of the early church here, we would think it would be the opposite, wouldn't we? When opposition comes, the church prays because the church understands that God is over all things and that only God can give us the boldness by His Spirit to speak for Him. So let us dedicate ourselves, Bankery Christian Fellowship Church, to be those who, who don't just speak about reaching people with the gospel with good strategies, but do that with a pleading with the Lord in prayer to give us boldness to keep speaking. Because there's so much round about us that would shut us up Lord, give us boldness to keep speaking so that we might speak of this Jesus even in secular Scotland today and pray that God would do what only God can do, what God did for you today, what God did for you. If you're a believer here today, what he did for you, he can do for others because when opposition comes, the gospel remains powerful, the mission remains unchanged, and the church prays. Amen.